0: We're going to dive in again to our class, Doctrine of Man and Sin. Just to give you a sense of where we're going today, we're moving out of the issues of gender and these basic creation issues to the essential nature of man, his body and soul. An important issue to get down, but perhaps less controversial than the material we've been working through. I think we have to so, go back to the Yeah. <laughs> Every time, we'll just re- review everything we've come. All right. Oh, man. It's been good, though. It's been good. It's important. Yeah. All right. I got a rowdy class today, so I better just, let's pray. All right. Father, thank you for again our day of worship, as the old Puritans used to call it, a market day for the soul. And we thank you for the rich uh, feast that you've prepared for us today through the the preaching and teaching of your word and the reading of scripture and uh, the singing of songs and hymns and spiritual songs and even the Lord's Supper today. And we pray that you would bless all of these means of grace to our souls, that you would build us up in our faith, that you would increase our knowledge of you, that you would fill us with a deeper love and devotion to you, to your Son, Jesus. We pray for the work of the Spirit in our souls, a work of illumination and softening of heart. And we pray that uh, even today, this morning, as we dive into the subject of what your Word teaches uh, about our nature as human beings, that you would give us understanding and wisdom, and that you would equip us uh, to live in a way that is in accord with the truth of scripture uh, in, in a world where these things are under assault and being eroded and attacked. And so we pray that you'd strengthen us for godliness even this morning, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so be ready with your Bibles. We're going to be reading some text today, but I just want to start with one basic truth that kind of lays the groundwork for what we're going to talk about. When we think of God, God is, His nature is not made up of parts, but is one thing that is indivisible in its essence. So it, it, if you think of God just you, you can't think of him being a composite being made up of parts, but rather he is a simple being, one indivisible, irreducible essence, right? So God is simple. That's where the old Puritans used to uh, talk about God being without parts. And the doctrine of simplicity is uh, just a way of saying that he's indivisible, not made up of anything more fundamental. As soon as you think about it for a second, you go, yeah, that must be true. God can't be made up of something more fundamental than himself. Otherwise, whatever it is that he's made up of would be God, right? And he would be the one who is derivative. Uh, So God is simple, irreducible. But man is not. Man's nature is made up of parts, parts which can be divided. So where God is simple, man is, you might say, complex or composite. Um, you might think, well, isn't it better to say that God is complex? Um, no, not if you mean that he's made up of parts. <laughs> if you mean that he is he's so difficult to understand, that he's mysterious to us, that there are things about God that are complex to understand. Well, that's one thing, but to talk about God in its essence as being complex would be wrong. But man is complex, he's made up of parts, he's composite. So if you think of you know a Lego, a Lego uh, creation made up of more fundamental parts, and that's that's true of man. Okay, so this is a fundamental distinction between creator and creature. God is simple. Man is composite. Man is made up of parts, and the fundamental parts of man might be described as body and soul. Now, of course, you could talk about man being made up of parts in different ways, like that we're made up of cells and atoms, etc. But, but in terms of the basic parts of man, uh, we talked about in Scripture, especially, we would we would reduce it to body and soul. Now, there, it is true that the scripture uses, besides the word soul, might use the word spirit. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. But in the scripture, if you, if you were to do a sort of closer word study, you would see that in the scripture, the terms spirit and soul are really interchangeable. They evidently refer to the same part of Man. And you could also you probably throw the word heart in there. Um, although the heart might at, at times refer to something more specific. Yet it's the same part of man. Heart, soul, spirit. And then his body. Okay, so two parts. Heart or body and soul. And let's look. Because what I would argue is that there's a sense in which this you know, the Bible doesn't take a whole lot of time to explain this truth to us. It just is reflected everywhere in the scripture, right? It's sort of like marriage being between a man and a woman. It's like, it's just everywhere. Wherever you see marriage, it's always a man and a woman, but doesn't, you know, feel the need to tell us, uh, well, let me tell you about the nature of marriage. It is, or that God exists, you know, it's just always assumed, right? And the same would be true of this Body and soul duality of man. So let's just look at some passages. I am going to maybe assign some each of you to one of these verses, or um, just ask for volunteers. Would someone volunteer to read Genesis two seven? Okay, Paul here. Uh, Matthew ten twenty eight. Who had that? Phil. Second Corinthians seven one. Who would volunteer to read that one? Okay, uh, Steve in the back. Uh, second or First Corinthians five five. Who was at the head there? Okay, Quinn. And then James 2:26. someone would be one, Paul. And then finally, Colossians 2:5. Colossians 2:5. Okay. All right, so we got our assignments. and so let's read through these together. Whoever uh, has Genesis 2:7, Paul, I think, yeah. let's start there.
1: And the Lord God formed man of dust, uh, of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being.
0: Okay, so you have there the creation of man. And you see that in the very beginning, there's this distinction between dust. Man is made from the dust, the physical stuff, right? And then into his nostrils is breathed the breath. The ruach is the Hebrew word. It, it means breath. It could also be translated spirit. And, and it's because he's both clay and spirit that he is a, a living creature. All right, and so at the very beginning, it's somewhat mysterious. This is not an elaborate description, but you can see that sort of uh, body soul duality right there in the very beginning of man's creation. Okay, Matthew ten twenty eight,
1: and fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. But rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell.
0: So there you see, Jesus speaks with this understanding of man being having both body and soul. Um, it's just assumed in the way he speaks. It's key to his argument there. Okay, Second Corinthians seven one. Since we
1: have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from very defilement of body
0: and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Okay, so there. We have body and spirit. Again, spirit being synonymous with soul. But again, it's that two-part description of man. We're to cleanse ourselves from every defilement, both of our bodies and our souls or spirit. Okay, First Corinthians five five.
1: You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord.
0: Okay, there it is again. This time, with, in a context of church discipline, that he be handed over for Satan. Satan would be given the ability to destroy a person's body, but the the motive behind the discipline is that the person's soul or spirit might be saved through it. James 2:26.
1: For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is
0: dead. Okay, so there it harkening back to Genesis 2:7, right? The body the clay part without the, the spirit, the breath part, is dead. And so you, there you see it again, that duality, body and spirit or soul. And then finally, Colossians two five, For
1: even though I am absent in body, nevertheless, I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ.
0: Okay, there it is again in a little bit of a different context. So you can see this throughout scripture. This is just a sampling of the many, many places in Scripture where you see this man as body and soul or body and spirit reflected in just as an assumption of Scripture. A two-part human nature. Body, soul. Okay. Any questions about that? Pretty straightforward. Yeah, Patty.
1: You know, it's often said that you're supposed to love the Lord with
0: all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Where does mind fit in? Is right. it part of the soul, or part of the body, or is that a third? Yeah, I want to talk about that. Let me put that on a hook and come back to it later on, and I'll, and I'll explain. But the short answer is yes. I think mind, will, desires, emotions are all part of, all belong to the soul, the in, the immaterial part of man, if you will. So, but we'll get there, you know, why does why are they distinguished out in that passage? I will explain that a little bit later on, but any other questions? Okay. All right. So let's go to the next. What are the differences between body and soul? What are the, the distinctive features that makes them different? Well, some of this is just intuitive, but let's just, and I'm not going to, I could develop a, a broader sort of biblical, basis for these, but we'll just look at a small sampling, just a few verses to establish these truths. First is that the body is the material or physical part of a man, a a human being, while the soul or spirit is the immaterial or the non-physical part of man. Okay, so you can pinch someone's body. There's stuff there. (laughs) You can see it. But you can't pinch someone's soul. You can't see someone's soul. Material versus immaterial. And let's just look at one verse here. 2 Corinthians 4.16. You guys are familiar with this. And if you think about it, ah, this kind of reflects that truth that the body is material, the soul is immaterial. Second Corinthians 4.16. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self, literally outer man... Our outer man is wasting away. Our inner self, our inner man, is being renewed day by day. So the reason I say man is because in the Greek it's anthropos, which is the word for man. So you have this reflecting the two-part nature of man. And you say, yeah, my outer self is wasting away. My body is getting older and degrading. Uh, while my inner man, your spirit, is actually being sanctified by the Holy Spirit as you grow as a Christian. So you're getting better on the inside, hopefully, Lord willing, that's the general progress, more Christ-like on the inside in your soul, even while at the same time your body is wasting away. And why is that? Because your body is Material made up of stuff, and because of the curse, it's wasting away. Your soul is immaterial; it's not, it's not going through the same process. In fact, you've been made new. You're a new creation, and you're being re- renewed uh, from one degree of glory to the next on the inside. So there's that first distinction: is the body's material, physical; the soul is immaterial, non-physical. Also, the body is visible, while the soul is invisible, you guys probably know, when I say First Samuel 16, you might even know, oh, I know what he's talking about, that's when Samuel went to visit David's sons, right, and he's, God has said, one of David's sons is going to be king, and, and, and he saw Eliab the firstborn, and what did he think? Good. Ah, there we go, he looks kingly, right, surely this is the one, but you remember what God said in verse 7, The Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. In other words, his body, right? Because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. You know, on the soul, on that immaterial part. So, only God can see into a person's heart, can see the immaterial part because it's invisible, right? But man can look on the body because that's the visible part of them. And so the scripture often speaks this way uh, as the body being the in, the visible part, the soul being the invisible part of man. And then finally, the body is mortal while the soul is immortal. Now, I want to hasten to say that when we say the body is mortal and, and the soul is immortal, we do not mean, A, that our bodies will, as Christians or even as non-Christians, will um, sort of pass out of existence forever at death. We know there is a, a general resurrection of the body, uh, both for believers and unbelievers, which we'll get to. But, but we say that the, the body is going to, is, can be destroyed and is destroyed through death whereas the soul continues on after the body is destroyed. And that's not this is the other clarification I want to make. That's not because there's something about the soul that is inherently imperishable. God could destroy our souls and cause us to go out of existence if he wanted to. Could he not? Right? But he in his it is his will that while our bodies may be destroyed in death, they could be burned in a fire They could be uh, thrown into the ocean and eaten by another creature and digested in their body. Hopefully that never happens to me. I'm terrified of sharks. (laughs) (laughs) Or you could be buried in the ground and your entire body, including your skeleton, could just disintegrate into the ground. But your soul will continue. And one of the places that you can see this, and and it's true, it is most likely a fictional story rather than a description of true... Uh, people, but the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in in Luke sixteen does seem to reflect the the general teaching of Scripture and and what you see in when you look at verses twenty two through twenty three. This is Jesus describes things playing out this way, not because this is totally different from the way things actually happen in real life, but it's a reflection of what really does happen to people. The poor man died. Verse 22, And was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So Lazarus, the poor man, and the rich man, who's never named, both die, and their bodies are buried, right? Supposedly, at least it says the rich man was buried. We don't know what happened to Lazarus. His body could have been tossed into a ditch or left somewhere, and perhaps he wasn't buried. That was not unthinkable, uh, but probably both are buried. Their bodies are slowly disintegrating, but they continue on. Lazarus, and, and the idea is that their souls continue on. Lazarus and at Abraham's side, that is in paradise, in the presence of God, and Whereas the rich man is in Hades, the abode of the wicked after death, where he awaits a place of torment, where he awaits the final judgment. So the body can be destroyed. It's physical. It's visible. It can be destroyed through death. But the soul, which is non-physical and invisible, will continue on and not be destroyed after death, but will go to either heaven or hell. Does that make sense? Okay, these are I know basic like intuitive things. If you've read your Bible, you go, yeah, that makes sense. But any questions about it? Okay, all right. Well, let's keep moving forward then. This is um, that's a control center. So uh, the the idea I'm trying to communicate here is that in the scriptures there seems to be an an order of direction, and the order of direction is not from the body to the soul as if the body directs the soul and i want to i'll clarify one thing about that in a second but but rather what we see in the scriptures is that the the soul the spirit the heart is the control center for the body right so actions flow out of the mind out of the soul out of the heart and the body follows the directions, the, the thoughts, the motives, the desires, the will of the heart, right of the immaterial. So the immaterial directs the material. And I think you can see this in lots of different places, but let's just look at two places. Would someone be willing to read Romans 6:12 through13? Romans 6, 12 through13? Someone be willing to read that? Anyone? 12-13? Yeah, Romans 6, 12-13.
1: Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin
0: as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as the instruments of righteousness to God. Okay, so he's speaking to us as Christians. He's saying we have a A principle of sin that still remains within us, but that we are not to take the members of our bodies and present it to sin, to the lusts of our sinful nature to serve sin, but rather we are to take the members of our body, of our mortal body, our physical body, our, our hands, our feet, our eyes, our mouth, we're to take the members of our body and present them to God, and to use them as instruments for righteousness, right? And do so you see that? the idea there is that we, and I think there he's speaking of our minds, our hearts, our souls, as the the most fundamental part of us in the sense of our we our I-ness, right? We uh, direct our bodies out of our hearts, out of our out of our souls. And so we are our bodies in one sense are instruments through which we act. Uh, now that's not to say that there's some kind of hard separation. Of course not. We are in one sense a union of body and soul, right? Uh, so my body is me. It's not someone else. It's not something else, right? It's part of my nature. And by God's design we are intended to be a union of body and soul, a an embodied soul, right? Or an ensouled body. Uh, however, there is a direction there, right? That our bodies follow, are directed by the desires and thoughts of our heart and so we are to present our bo- we're to use our bodies as instruments to do what is right instead of what is wrong. Here's another passage, Matthew 15:17 through 20 if someone would read those verses.
1: Not yet understand that whatsoever Entereth into the mouth goeth into the belly, and is it cast into the drought. But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart, and they defile the man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, theft, false witness, blasphemy. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands defileth not a man.
0: Do you see the same basic Principle that is reflected in Romans 6 is here as well that where do these sinful actions originate from? They originate from the control center of man, from the heart, right? From the immaterial part of him, the inner man. And so there's lots of implications from that, but just in terms of understanding our nature, we can think of the the immaterial soul as being the control center for the body. Any, any questions about that? Okay. Alright. However, that being said, right, my father is in memory care facility right now. His brain is slowly being degenerated through a disease of the brain, right? And that, that has affected his, his soul, right? <laughs> so he's not able to think and desire in the same way that he used to because his brain isn't working properly. And you could say something similar, like if you've just, you know, come off a 16-hour flight from Africa and you haven't slept in a day, right? And your body like you find it's harder to think right. It's harder to, you know, you're irritable, whatever. Like, so it's not to say, again, we're a union of body and soul. Our soul is affected by the condition of our bodies. However, the fundamental direction here is that the soul controls the body. So however the, the body affects the soul, like let's just say you come off that flight and you're tired, you may want to use that tiredness as an excuse, excusing away the the moral action of irritability and anger. But at the end of the day, right, we're still morally culpable for those actions because our hearts are the control center. But there is a sense of compassion upon our frailty and the way that our bodies at times affects our souls. Similarly, you might say that the, the soul is affected by the body in the sense that what you see with your eyes what you hear with your ears goes into your soul right and becomes and influences the decisions and the thoughts and desires of the soul so it's it's an interplay of course and there's a there's a mutuality there but fundamentally we would argue we would say that the the soul is the control center for human nature and directs the body in its moral activity. So, does that does that make sense? Any, any questions there?
1: That latter one, yeah. plays right into what Paul is talking about: is that I want to do good, that which I want to do good, and I don't do, and that which I know I not, should not do, I do. Um, yeah, the, the body fighting against the, the soul.
0: Right. The only thing I would say uh, is that I think there is a distinction in the scripture. So when you see the word flesh, sarx in the Greek, uh, flesh, it doesn't always, I think, refer simply to the physical body, but rather to what we would call, and this is why you see it often translated in the New International Version, uh, sometimes it does refer to the physical body, but sometimes it refers to the sinful nature. In other words, there is also and there's a sense in which sin has corrupted not only your bodies, but has also corrupted your soul. That that we would say that principle of sin has affected us in our entire nature, both our body and our soul, and and so our thoughts of our heart, the desires of our soul, of our immaterial being are also corrupted, and so. Sometimes the Bible means by flesh that principle of sin that is that is corrupted your heart so that you have a battle going on even within your soul and that in one sense that's where that clash really lies is that part of you of your immaterial soul that is yet to be entirely freed from sin you have remaining corruption and so you have these sinful desires that come out of your soul as well as uh, holy desires. Now I, I confess that part of the, the way that it all works out is mysterious, right? <laughs> Damn, I don't know exactly how to sort all of all of that out, but I think that we would say that uh, like for instance in Romans 7 and also in Galatians 5, when he talks about that, I do the things that I do not want to do, that that's a, a battle that is not just body and soul, but but it's a battle that's going on within your soul, in your immaterial being as well. So that we look for the day when both, when through resurrection, both body and soul will be entirely glorified. And we will not only be our perfect physical selves, but we will also be a perfect, have a perfect soul. And that's actually going to be probably the most glorious part of our liberation. I mean, the glorious part of heaven is the presence of God and the full consummate relationship with God. But man, you think about heaven, You like, I want to see, you know, my, my grandmother and my parents who have died. And I want to, I want to see what the new creation is going to be like. But you know, one thing you're going to rejoice in overall is that you will have no more sinful thoughts, no more selfish desires, oh, no more. Right. <laughs> No more, you know, sinful anger rising up in your soul. No more harsh words coming out of your mouth. It will be perfectly glorifying the Lord. Oh, praise God! Not today. <laughs> yeah, not, but uh, not, but not today. Yeah. Are there still people who
1: believe that the body is the corrupt part and the soul is not, and therefore the separation would be? It seemed like there was a time when there was. Uh, if we just. Get rid of the body will be great,
0: right? Well, I, I would say that. So the ancient Greeks used to hold to what what we would now, looking back, call a sort of a dualism, which is the idea that your body, that physicality, is inherently bad. It's the the corruption, uh, the corrupt creation or product of sort of diabolical evil demi-gods and I don't I'm not totally um, an expert on ancient Greek philosophy but something along that line the idea that uh, is where this this idea came from that your body and and the physical world was inherently bad and that therefore the goal the goal that you should press toward is escaping your physical body into a higher form of reality so so death was like a liberation and even today, in Eastern cultures, that's what has been reflected in the burning of a person's body upon their death. Now, of course, cremation has come into the West, and I'm not saying necessarily that you know you're committing a sin through cremation. Obviously, it's a very it's become a very expensive prospect to <laughs> have your body buried. But the point is, is that. The practice really has its roots in a different idea of what would happen to you when you died, and what what was the ideal state uh, to escape the body, because the body's bad, but the soul is good. And that idea of dualism, you can see, was affecting the church even in the in the scriptures. You see, the, it reflected where, uh, for instance, in Corinth, it seems that some people had the idea that their souls were with God through Christ and his redemptive work and therefore it didn't really matter what they did with their bodies. They could still go down to the temple and sleep with the temple prostitutes because that was just their body. It didn't matter. And even the denial of the resurrection of the body or the denial that Christ really came in the flesh which you see in John's letters. Where is that coming from? Why would anyone deny that? Because it was a cultural presumption that the flesh was inherently evil. And so it was unthinkable to some people in that culture that Christ would assume a human body and be raised in that body, right? So there was that influence of what you call a, a dualism because it was a, a cultural assumption. So you could think of what are some cultural assumptions that we have today that have affected the church, right? That we have just brought over unthinkingly into the church because there's so much a part of the fabric of our society Well, that way of thinking was part of the fabric of the first century world that Jesus and the apostles lived in. And so the physicality of the New Testament and the goodness of the body and the perpetuity of the body, because Christ himself was raised, we too will be raised and we will inherit a a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth. All of that was not what people in that day would have thought would be ideal. I think I thought we're supposed to get out of this. So does that make sense? So I do think it, it is, and and to some degree you can see remnants of that way of thinking. Although it, not so much today. You know, we live in a more materialistic age, where the idea of even that there is such a thing as a soul is more rejected as being. Superstitious. And it's
1: still going on because my brother is all into this nirvana, you know. I want to reach my nirvana. Right. You know, and my right.
0: go around. Right. Well, and, and that's why I would say, in the East, I would say, it's much more prevalent to think of that, you know, what you want to do eventually is escape the, the physical world. Okay, so, so this is, why, you know, one of the reasons why it's important to work through this. What does the Bible teach about human nature? Because it's it's it is under assault, and we could easily be confused and thrown off if we are simply assuming certain cultural ideas.
1: And in the Garden of Eden, if, if God created man and
0: woman,
1: and it would right, be, right. Created, so if the body is inherently evil, right. God would not have created it or Garden of Eden, right. you
0: know, right right, yeah the the Bible storyline moves not from physical to disembodied spiritual existence, but from creation to fall to new creation. so it's somewhat mysterious as to what that will be like. However, the Bible has no idea that sitting in heaven on a cloud with a harp uh, is our ultimate destination, but rather. That we will be physical human beings and glorified bodies living in a creation freed, set free from the corruption that came through sin. And we don't know exactly what all that's going to be like. You know, you have all kinds of questions. Your kids will ask you, are there going to be cats in heaven and dogs and giraffes? I know there's going to be no sharks, but besides that, probably it's all open. out the open pretty much pretty sure spiders are a result of the curse as well but who knows
1: <laughs> all
0: right okay let's keep moving forward here so another thing to understand is that the body and soul can be separated okay they are separable so God himself is not made up of parts he's indivisible he cannot there's there is no parts of him that could be separated from one another, but man is composite, body and soul, and his parts can be separated. Now, we hasten to say that God created man to have a nature that is body and soul, and that the soul and the body would be united. That's his original intention, right? But sin brought physical death, which involves the separation of the soul from the body. So let's look at a few texts here. Genesis chapter 35, verses 18 and 19. This is speaking of Rachel. As she's giving birth to Benjamin, and she's going to die in childbirth. And it's described in verse 18. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name ben Oni, uh, which meant son of my sorrow. But his father called him Benjamin, which means son of my right hand, or son of, my, of strength so Rachel died. What did death involve? It involved the departing of her soul from her body. And maybe some of you have actually watched that play out with a loved one. You've watched their soul depart from their body. It's a a sobering and stirring thing. Isaiah 53, the description of the suffering servant, the Messiah. Verse 12, therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death. There's the idea of an emptying of the soul from the body. Is is it the imagery being described there? Uh, Luke chapter 12, verse 19, the parable of the rich fool. Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Eat, drink, relax, eat, drink, be merry. Verse 20, but God said to him, fool, fool. This night your soul is required of you and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be, right? So his soul will leave his body in death. That's the idea. John chapter 19, verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So his body is left hanging upon the cross, but his spirit has departed from his body. All of these texts, and many, many others in Scripture, indicate that because of sin, death has entered into the world, and physical death involves the departure of the soul from the body. And upon death, the soul of a believer goes to heaven, and the soul of an unbeliever goes to hell. This text here is one we already looked at, right? Do you remember the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. It describes how both of them died. And one went to the bosom of Abraham, that is, went to paradise. The other went to Hades, the underworld, so to speak, the, the abode of the dead who die in their sins, right? A place of torment. So you see that the bodies of both were buried in fact the rich man actually says he was buried his soul was separated from his body and went to Hades and here you know these texts let's look at let's look at probably the most famous of them second corinthians chapter 5 verses 6 through 8 paul says this so we are always of good courage we know that while we are at home in the body we are away from the lord for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Notice that he's identifying himself and us with our souls. And he's describing death as the soul, we, being away from our bodies, but present with the Lord. And, and just like Paul says in Philippians 1, where he says, he talks about I'm going to glorify God, whether by life or by death. And then he talks about, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Why? Because he says, to depart from the body would be to be with the Lord. So his body might die, but his soul would be with the Lord. So these are texts, and there are many others, which speak of the souls of believers, upon departing from the body in death, going to be in the presence of God in heaven the souls of unbelievers going to a place of separation from God, a place of torment that we would call hell. And then, finally, in the end, though, everyone's body and soul will be reunited, so their soul will be reunited with their body, through resurrection, in a condition fit for eternal life in the new creation, or... Eternal ruin in the lake of fire. You say, wait, wait wait a second. I know believers are raised from the dead, but what do you mean that everyone will be raised in bodies? Well, there are a couple, there's one particular text, John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. You remember Jesus says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. In other words, this is what we would call the general resurrection, that all human beings who have died will be raised to stand before Christ in judgment, and will be sentenced either to an eternity of life in the presence of God, or an eternity of ruin, away from the presence of God. And you say, well, where are those two pl- destinations? Uh, if you were to read this text, you would see them. One is the new creation, Revelation 21, 1-5, through and the other is the lake of fire. In fact, when you look at Revelation 21, if you get down, you see the description of the new creation and God dwelling with his people There. But then, verse 8, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So it is, it is. in one sense, the ultimate experience of death. Not the separation of the soul from the body, but the separation of the unbeliever body and soul from God himself, from his blessing and favor and Spiritual union that believers experience in the new creation.
1: I've been having a conversation with someone in regards to whether people actually burn in hell forever, mm-hmm. um, and you know the, the indication that when you throw something into the fire that it burns up and it ceases to exist.
0: Right. So the view that you're hearing, you're interacting with, would be something called annihilationism, or sometimes called conditional immortality. And it's the idea that that unbelievers, their eternal state is not really eternal. It's eternal in the sense that the outcome is forever. Uh, but it's not eternal in that it goes on and on and on, eternal conscious torment. Uh, it is interesting that even in the... 16th chapter of Revelation where you have a sort of different description. It talks about those who take the mark of the beast, which in the book of Revelation is, I would argue, a, a reference to unbelievers. Uh, they're in distinction from those who have the mark of the lamb. And it talks about the smoke of their torment going up forever and ever, and they shall have no rest either day or night. And that I think reflects a broader teaching of Scripture that the eternal state of the wicked is a conscious state. It's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, for instance. It's a place of everlasting or eternal ruin and torment, even. And... So, while I'm not arguing that the imagery of flames is necessarily literal, it's certainly conveying something real, something of the horror of hell. So, I would argue that the the biblical teaching, which really has been the standard understanding of the church going back throughout its history, is hell is a place of eternal conscious punishment. And that the idea that the soul would just be sort of destroyed uh, is not the... Not the biblical teaching.
1: Thank you. I'm having a to your...
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's lots to be said there. <laughs> we went we went through this discussion at our church oh, not long back, and uh, there's a lot of argumentation that is put forward on the other side that has to be interacted with. But but I would just say that that's a summary of it. Okay, so this is true. Body and soul are separable. It's not the intended state, but they, but they can be separable, and that's what will happen when we die to believers and unbelievers. There has been a question about whether or not the Bible actually might teach more. We should think of the human nature as having three parts, not two, body, soul, and spirit. I'm not going to go into this in great depth, but there are passages. For instance, if you turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, it mentions instead of just body and soul, like normal, there are a few places like this where they say they make a distinction between spirit and soul. Another place that's famous, if I were to say, the word of God is living and active, sharper than two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, right? Judging the thoughts and intentions of a heart. That's another place to say, oh, see, they—that's those are parts that could be divided, soul and spirit. I think that a careful study of scripture, Grudem goes into this in quite a bit of depth, and most systematic theologies will, you know, give you more about the word studies. If you, if you were to go through and you were to examine the usage of soul and spirit in the Bible, the words that are translated soul and spirit, they really are interchangeable, that they refer to the same thing throughout the scripture. And so there, the idea that there would be a distinction between them is, is I don't think, the best way to in, understand these texts. What is the best way to understand these texts? I would just say that there are times when the New Testament uses basically a, a literary device of piling up terms, synonymous terms, to make a point of emphasis. So, one of the most famous places you can see this is, well, Luke ten twenty seven, and you guys all know it. This is the greatest commandment, that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? Now, what is Jesus saying? That those are four distinct parts of you, that you have to use each of those parts uh, to love God with each of those parts? I don't think that is the case. You know, certainly that kind of fine distinction between those terms is not sustainable throughout the rest of scripture. So what is he doing? What do you think is the force of that? Why would he pile up synonymous terms?
1: Emphasize how important that
0: that you're supposed to do. Right, it's it's to emphasize just it's making the point with every part of you, with your entire self. You are to love the Lord your God. So that is a not an uncommon literary device, piling up synonymous terms to emphasize a point. And so I think that's most likely what's going on in in those passages. I actually unpacked the Hebrews text more when I preached on that text. You could listen to that sermon if you wanna hear a little bit more about that. But I, I don't think that his point there is that, you know, the soul and spirit are really separate. I think he's just saying the word of God pierces down into the very depths of your soul, right? <laughs> and so I, I don't think that the what's this is sometimes called trichotomy versus dichotomy, if you wanna use the official Theological terminology, but the vast majority of I think modern scholars, people that you would know and respect, in terms of evangelical, orthodox students of Scripture, are, are going to say that really the threefold nature of view is it's minority for a reason because it's not it's not the best understanding of Scripture. However, there are some respected you know scholars and preachers who would hold to that. So. It's not a point at which I would fall out with someone over it, but I do think that it's probably not the, the accurate view. Okay, and then let's walk through some of these implications here. What does this all mean? Why is this important? Well, one, it means that human beings are not just bodies, but souls as well. We can't just be reduced down to brains, our thoughts, our desires. They're not just chemical reactions. They're reflecting the nature of man, that we have an immaterial soul and a material body. And, and that's important, isn't it? The idea of materialism, that there is no, there is nothing besides matter, physical matter, has all kinds of... I mean, first of all, it eliminates God from the picture, right? Eliminates your soul from the picture. It means that you're just a, a bag of bubbling chemicals... And and so, you know, it really doesn't matter. There's no ultimate transcendent morality, there's no afterlife, there's no existence beyond your death. And all these things. Do you think that at least if you tried to live consistent with that, would that affect your life and how you lived? And absolutely. I I've heard very smart people articulate this. I was just listening to Al Moeller. Interview uh, Stephen Pinker, a famous atheist, just articulate this with very you know calm, straightforward. Now he goes home and he loves his wife and he loves his children and he has strong opinions about moral issues, right? But at the end of the day, he doesn't. He doesn't believe that man is anything more than than a material body, and that all the stuff that goes on in your heart is really just the activity of your brain, right? That is, So that would have a huge impact. The the Bible says, no, we are body and soul. There's material and immaterial part of us, just like God himself is spirit. Second implication is that the body is not inherently bad, getting to what um, we were talking about before. Rather, both the body and the soul are important parts of human nature as God created it. So this would be contrary to that dualism a view that in the ancient world, where we would look back and call it docetism, that you know the idea is that your your body is inherently bad; it's a drag on you, and eventually you just want to escape your body. I know you may feel like that at times, but no, your body is part of your very nature. It's part of what it means to be a man, your or a woman. Your body is part of you, so it can't just be eliminated like it's just a like a big annoying coat of skin <laughs> and bones that you could just discard hopefully someday no it's it's part of mankind human nature also what we do with our body matters to god right so you remember we read this passage present the members of your body to god as instruments of righteousness So, all of a sudden, the things that you do with your body, you can do in such a way that honors God. Your body is an instrument of service to God, an instrument of worship, an instrument of moral conduct, right? All right. The goal, therefore, of our redemption as human beings is not for our soul to escape our bodies but it's the glorification of both our bodies and our soul through resurrection. And by the way, this is why Jesus assumed He didn't just come as a spirit. He assumed a full human nature, body and soul. Why? Because through His own life and death and resurrection, He would redeem us in our entirety both our souls and one day our bodies as well. Right? So this is it's important that we understand this about human nature because it's woven into our understanding of redemption. You think of Romans chapter 8, where he talks about the redemption of our bodies, which is to come, and how we groan inwardly until that day comes. Another implication we don't cease to exist when our bodies are destroyed, since our souls continue either in heaven or in hell. For us, we say, to be away from the body is to be present with the Lord. And this gives us great comfort, right? When a loved one, when you sit by their bed, and you they breathe their last, and you hear the machine going, indicating that their body, that they are no longer living, you don't say they've ceased to exist. You know, if they're a believer, to your joy in the midst of your sorrow, you know that they have their soul has departed their body, like we saw described of Rachel, and gone to be with the Lord, and that gives us that. That's why Paul can say that we grieve, but not as those without hope. In fact, the the New Testament you'll see on occasion. Reflecting the practice of early Christians will describe the death of a believer as falling asleep. Why would they describe it that way? It's temporary. Yeah, to, to indicate that one day they will awake, right? So if you say that someone is asleep, you're like, oh, good. If you say that they're dead, that's, that's like horrible, right? The language of sleep was to emphasize to believers that their condition is only temporary. That one day, as Job himself said, right, in my flesh I shall see God. Also, the disembodied state of believers after death is not ultimate, but temporary. That's what we were just talking about. Until the resurrection of their bodies at the end of history. I love this passage. So let's just look at it really quickly. But The end of Philippians 3, he says this. After describing those whose end is destruction, uh, whose minds are set on earthly things, he says in verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. So when He comes, when He destroys this present world with fire and makes all recreates a new heavens and new earth makes all things new our own physical bodies will be a part of that that we will be given glorious bodies and you say what will they be like well like Jesus' body that you read of in the gospels <laughs> the, the same body he had before but different perfect glorious another implication though both the body and the soul are corrupted by sin sanctification must begin in the soul because it's the soul that directs the body in moral behavior. I just threw this proverb, there are many texts I could have put here, but you know the proverb, keep your heart with all diligence for from it flow the springs of life. Right? It's just a way of recognizing that obedience to God, holiness, begins with the heart. Because as Jesus said, it's out of the heart that come all of these sinful behaviors. And so the sanctifying work of the Spirit to strengthen us to live holy lives must begin with our hearts. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We have to have the very desires and thoughts of our hearts transformed by the Spirit. And then out of that will flow holiness not it's just not it's not just a change of circumstances it's it's not like well if i was just less tired and got more sleep that would be holy well of course you know our circumstances affect our souls but holiness comes from the heart right it begins with the heart and flows out because the heart is the wellspring of life the control center for the body and then finally man is to worship god with body and soul you know what this says right In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to Him, which is your spiritual service of worship. So, worship of God is something that involves both body and soul, that we are to present our bodies to God as a living sacrifice. How do we do that? By obeying His will in our bodies. And how does that happen? It starts in our souls with hearts and minds and motives and desires and thoughts that are conformed to His own as the Spirit gives us illumination and strength. And so, you know, this is why, like in our day of hedonistic pleasure-seeking, sexual immorality, drunkenness, etc., etc., we say all of that is, this is sacred territory. We don't say, well, that doesn't matter. What we do with our bodies doesn't matter. No. No. We are, we are to honor God with our bodies. Remember how Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, You are no longer your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. Right? Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Okay, well, we're going to end there. Um, feel free to come and ask questions. Discuss with me afterwards, but not too long because I need to try to start the service on time this time. <laughs> All right. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for our time in your word and for these truths that we've considered. We pray that you would teach and instruct us through the scriptures this morning. Help us, Lord, as some of these things may be difficult to understand. Some have an element of mystery to them. Some we're still working through. Give us wisdom. Help us to to understand the truth about our nature as human beings, that we might think rightly and, and walk in accordance with truth in an age of confusion and rebellion against your very created order and and in an age in which we think that we in our society we think that we are the autonomous lords of our own bodies. Uh, oh God, forgive us, be merciful to us in the midst of your judgment, help us to be a people of your own possession, called out of darkness into the light of your Son, who walk in truth and provide a testimony to the transforming and redeeming power of Christ through the way that we conduct ourselves in the body. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.